0: 3CR
1: Breakfast.
0: Alternative news, analysis and
2: current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8:30am. Early
3: double.
4: Good morning, everybody. You are listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. It is the 30th of October. And to start our show today, Wednesday Breakfast would like to acknowledge that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation.
2: We'd like to pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed.
5: Current efforts. Current efforts to establish treaties are diminished by the Victorian state government's decision to disregard First Nations sovereignty.
2: Mm. And with that, we start our show. As Will said, it's the 30th of October. Um, Halloween. What, what day is Halloween? Is that I think coming it's up?
4: The 31st. It's the 31st. Um, but I don't believe in no ghosts.
2: Ooh. Oh. <laughs> I have to admit. I, again, seeing as I don't really know the date, I'm not really into it. But oh. I was thinking it's something that I, I, I guess characterises this week. Mm. It's like something we should look out it's, for. Well, it's been a spooky week, hasn't it? It has been a bit of a spooky week. Yes. What, you, what in particular are you referring to, Will? I'm
4: referring to IMARC. Um, so yeah. the, um, the International Minerals and Resources Conference. Is that what that stands
2: for? Or mining and It's resources? the International Mining and Resources Conference. Yes, conference well done.
4: that's happening down at the Exhibition Centre, Melbourne Exhibition uh, From the 28th to 31st, and so it's being Mondays blockaded 30. by um, by citizens and community organisations. 3CR has been covering this mm. since um, since the activities uh, of the blockade started on Monday. Um, And we're going to be having an update hopefully today as well.
2: Yeah, so um, the blockade is really happening from Tuesday to Thursday. Monday Mm. we had a lot of um, kind of events, a few protests just going on before the conference started. But basically Tuesday at 8 o'clock registration opened and yeah, today and tomorrow the conference will be continuing. Mm. And yeah, there's a big blockade going out. So we have uh, basically a traditional ring blockade around the Entrances and ex- exits of the building, but also um, a few protest groups, mm. people on site, and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We will be covering it, and yeah, hopefully we'll be crossing to Jess, who has gone down on and is going to be on the blockade today this Good morning. Old Jess, the, so Jess, With the
4: outside broadcaster microphone. <laughs> Putting in people's faces, getting their views. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because
2: there's nothing better than being on a blockade and then having a reporter just be like, hi, <laughs> can you tell me some more about how you're feeling right now? <laughs>
4: no, no, I'm look, I'm look, I am looking forward to hearing hearing more about that. Um, and um, we've got lots of stuff going on the show today. We've got a full, full range show. of interviews. After alternative news and a little bit of discussion, we'll be hearing a pre-record that Jess um, recorded with an independent Lebanese protester. Um, And uh, it'll be good to get an update on what's happened. This happened um, just for context over the weekend, the interview. And so it won't have any reference to the fact that um, Hariri, the prime minister of Lebanon, has since stepped down. Mm. um, And protesters are welcoming this, but hoping that it is the first of many step prime ministers and uh, members of parliament stepping down and other members of the elite. Um, So there's that. Uh, and then, um, at 7.45, we're going to be speaking to Darug writer and school teacher and, um, language educator, Jasmine Seymour, about her new book, um, Kui Mitigar, um, which I'm quite excited to hear about. It's, we're mm. going to be having a conversation about ind- Indigenous language education and the importance of it and, um, and maybe why you should go out and grab one of those, those beautiful books. I've, have an advanced copy and it's gorgeous. Um, and then at uh, eight o'clock, we're going to be speaking to Ella Buckland, who is a welfare justice advocate and Parents Next critic. Um, we're going to be talking about the fact that women are 50 percent more likely to experience food insecurity as compared to men mm. and how Australia's often very sexist um, and very punitive welfare system can contribute to this Um and then
2: uh, 8.10. 8.10, we're going to be hearing our update from the wonderful Jess. Mm-hmm. Uh, registrations, as I said, open at 8, so 8.10 is probably things are going to be sh- moving. And then at 8.20, we have um, Michelle O'Neill on from the uh, ACTU, which mm-hmm. is, again, Australian Trade...
4: Australian Council of Trade Unions. Thank you.
2: Yep. Um, and she's going to be talking about the Ensuring Integrity Bill. So this mm-hmm. is a proposed bill by the Liberals. I'll give you a bit more information at twenty. Mm-hmm. However, she's going to be talking about this, how is, this bill is draconian mm-hmm. and anti-democratic in sentiment mm. and is li- very likely to damage worker rights across yes. the country. So, yeah, that's how we're going to be concluding our show. Mm. As, you, as we said, very packed. Like we're, We've got interviews right up to the, the buzzer. Yeah,
4: absolutely. <laughs> so, um, let's, let's not stuff around. Shall we get straight to alternative news? Let's Sounds do good. It. Let's do it. Some folks know about it, some don't.
5: So this morning we're going to be talking about, um, the fresh food supply chain. So what you eat is very likely to have been grown somewhere in Australia because Australia produces over 90% of its own fresh fruit and veggies. But who are picking our veggies? Mm. The National Union of Workers, which represents our workers in the fresh food supply chain, published a report earlier this year saying that contrary to popular perception, European backpackers are a minority of farm workers. The majority of people working on farms come from Asia, with 40% being Malaysian or Indonesian who are undocumented or on protection visas, 20% are backpackers on working holiday maker visas, and 20% are Pacific Islanders, often on the seasonal worker program, and the remaining 20% are a mixture of migrants from diverse backgrounds. So while the media outlets are reporting on the horror field 88 days that European backpackers go through when they're working on farms to extend their visa, the truth of the matter is that undocumented people are more likely to have picked your veggies and have been underpaid for it. The union's report Farm Workers Speak Out is built on surveys from around 650 workers and found that the average hourly pay was $14.80 before tax, which is well below the casual minimum wage of $24.36 and could be as little as $4.80 an hour. There have been a lot of government reports about this. Um, some laws have come out of the reports like the Modern Slavery Act and the P- Protecting Vulnerable Workers Bill, but a lot of researchers say that these laws aren't enough. They're not monitored, they rely... They're not monitored and um, there's no independent oversight and sometimes there's no penalties if, if businesses are noncompliant with um, producing their reports. Um This year's budget has money allocated to take action on a bunch of recommendations that came out of another government report called the Migrant Workers Task Force. One of the recommendations is the establishment of a national labour hire licensing scheme, um, similar to one that's already come into effect in Victoria, but the federal government is calling it a light touch national labour hire licensing scheme. Um, all, the government's also looking at um, creating criminal charges rather than just civil charges for wage theft mm. and more money and authority to the Fair Work Ombudsman. In 2017, the Fair Work Ombudsman uh, finished its four-year investigation into the Harvest Trail and using its power as a regulator, it recovered $1 million in wages for around 2,500 workers. But it was the result of an investigation that only took place over four years and it's no longer happening. Um, it's really surprising to me because this is Australia, a country with workplace laws and minimum wages, but at the same time our primary industry of fresh food, which keeps us fed, is about 50% compliant with workplace law, according to government reports. And I just feel like if we can't get that right, then what can we get right if we can't even eat without having people being underpaid for it? Anyway, the National Union of Workers who are currently... Um, uh, calling for stronger laws around accessorial liability to make farmers and contractors more accountable. They are also they also want to see Coles and Woolworths take on more responsibility. Um, they'd like to um, visit uh, workers on farms before they um, take up employment to let them know what their rights are and what the standards are. Uh, they also have a petition. Um, on Megaphone.com that's called uh, Coles and Woolworths Must End Labor Exploitation on Their Farms. So we'll we'll put up a link online so people can find it and sign it if they're interested. Um, Anyway, I'd like to know what your conception of the workforce employed in farming is. Did you think that European backpackers made up the majority of workers or not?
4: I'll be 100% honest. I genuinely did think that. Um, I thought it was a mixture of local workforce and... Backpackers, like, I've, I've met, um, I just because of my, my, my sort of, I suppose, my social background and, um, my whiteness, that most of the people I was in contact with were also white. And so the ones who went into farming would usually be European backpackers. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that, that was like, I, I heard from them, oh, it's really tough. Like, onions are the worst. They're so hard to rip out. So <laughs> that's the kind of level of, um, information that I had about the background of our food. Of mm-hmm. course, I had the choice to go out and learn more, but I didn't. Um, and so this is, like, it's it's not surprising to me now that I've been um, involved in, in 3CR for a bit longer, and I've heard from migrant workers, and we've interviewed um, people from the Migrant Workers Centre here, here in, in, in the studio as well. Um, but, no, initially, European backpackers, they're the ones who pluck out tom- um, tomatoes, aren't they? Well, there's a lot
5: of like, stories. If you Google kind of farm worker yep. exploitation, a lot of stories in the media do focus on backpackers. Mm. And yeah. I think it's because they're able to be more visible. It's probably easier for mm. journalists to speak with them rather than to get an undocumented person to go on the record with being, you know, underpaid. Because
4: of their visa status, Mm. they feel more secure in in reaching out to to journalists. I
5: think that maybe plays a part in Mm. why journalists focus on European backpackers.
2: Well, it's interesting because from the limited experience I've had fruit picking, because I've done it a few summers, um, the the, the people you get kind of are a really mixed group and they usually... It's a pretty desperate situation. Like it's not a it's not a nice place to work. Um, the few farms that I've been on have been considered better because they actually you know have some sort of conditions around. But it's it's really it lacks guidelines or structure. It really is chucking people out in a field, doesn't matter what you're picking, in the sun for hours with limited support, um, in the middle of nowhere at times. It's just, it's a scary situation, and the people I've usually met are really hardened by it. <laughs> mm. They've kind of um, kind of come to terms with what they're doing and they're kind of just trying to get through it. Um, so you, you kind of mentioned the Hidden in Plain Sight report, which led to the Modern uh, Slavery Act Bill, which Australia's passed recently, and we had someone on recent, uh, earlier this year talking about it. But it's just such an easy environment for modern slavery or, or worker exploitation. It's such fertile grounds for that to be created so it really doesn't surprise me in the discussion around that 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 people are getting so heavily exploited there uh from my experiences too also it is a mix it is a mixed kind of background you do get a lot of people yeah working there and it just again that 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 susceptibility to worker exploitation is just so unsurprising, especially with the bill that we saw passed in Australia. It, it lacks any teeth, as you mentioned. It mm-hmm. doesn't have any punishment yeah, or any sort so of independent surprising. oversight. It's kind of hoping that the companies will listen and, and comply. Yeah. So it, it really is quite a desperate state of affairs. And from working, I know, doing my little tiny bit of cherry picking, I know I never want to go back there because it's just kind of like, oh, that's, that's something you do if you can't make ends meet. And just that that level of desperation, or that level of kind of not even desperation, maybe um that level of vulnerability, at times it it could be exploited so easily. Mm. And so it, uh, I think you're completely right. If we can't trust. You know, our fresh produce to to be looking after the people who are picking it. That's mm. that's a pretty it sad seems state so of basic. affairs. You know, it's the food yeah. that
5: we eat. If we can't have an industry that is ethical, there, then mm. how can we do anything more kind of complex? And it's so written toss-up.
2: into our it's so written into our subconscious. I mean, you never think about where your food comes from, do you? You don't think about um, large issues like food miles or the, that sort of sustainable footprint of it, right? But if you track it all the way back to the people picking it. When you're picking up your tomatoes and you think you're going, oh, it's got kind of a spot on it. You're not thinking, oh, this person's been out in the field for, like, seven hours been in the sun picking rate. it, yes. yeah, it's and then shocking. getting paid the amount of boxes they create of it, which means they're just they're going crazy. It's just mm-hmm. ridiculous. Mm. Also, I think another the last thing was the amount of waste that they have to watch. You know, people pick for hours, and then they, have to, they see, like, boxes they've picked, just thrown out because, you know, they've got a weird spot on them or they're wow. not the right shape. Like, that it's it's surprisingly, de- again, it's surprisingly devastating. It's a really psychologically hard thing to get through.
4: <laughs> As the picker, seeing the things the that you've picked to get thrown away. Get
2: thrown away right. after spending hours picking them, mm, after spending hours, mm. you know, sweating over this, mm. to see that sort of work thrown away, to get paid pittance, all those sorts of mm. things combined. I think it's quite a psychological endurance, mm. Yeah. Hmm. Do
5: you think that um, consumers should be more accountable for the type of produce they produce and making sure that it was sourced ethically? Or do you think that retailers like Coles and and Woolworths should really be making sure their contractors and every step in their supply chain is is legal?
4: Well, I mean, at, at the very least, Woolworths and Coles have the resources. To, mm. to do that sort of thing. They're massive institutions, and they've got all of these people working in administration and all of these buyers going out and sourcing the produce. I mean, they're the ones who are on the land, going into the farms, meeting with the farm owners at least, um, and I'm not doing that. I'm, like, as in, not, not that I don't want to, but also I can't. Like, you know, I, I have my job here in the city, and I don't, mm. like, I'm just speaking for a lot of people who won't actually have the time to go onto the farm, because that's really the only way that you can make sure that the people who are picking up fruit and veg are being paid properly and given live, like, workable conditions. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't I think agree. It, it's something that we as consumers have the capacity to do. All we I can agree. Do is, like,
2: I also find that yeah. alternatives are somewhat inaccessible. I mean, it'd mm. be great if we can all shop local, all shop organic, all shop mm. ethical, but mm. those things are expensive, so that cuts out a huge bracket of people who can't, you know, totally. necessarily sustain yep. that on a, on a weekly basis. Mm. Uh, it depends on what area you live in. I mean, do you have that local cute shops of, you know, the ethical yeah, green yeah. groceries.
4: Do you live near Sydney Road or do you live way out in the, the East, outer suburbs? In the outer yeah. suburbs, yeah. you know.
2: Um, it is also, I reckon my only thought for people who are potentially, like, uh, from a consumer-based responsibility-wise is, like, if you have the ability, go out there and grow your own produce in some ways really. or, or maybe, you know... Do start looking out for those uh, for community gardens and things like that because I reckon that's one way you can shift towards it. And mm-hmm. Maybe try that's and try to yeah. yeah try to boycott um Coles and Safeway, but of course that still doesn't solve the problem because there's workers out there who they're not getting paid. So I do think I agree with mm. I, I agree with Will. You gotta see action lead from the, the top players. Yeah, it's ridiculous again to push responsibility back on the end of it, on the consumer and just say it's all your fault that mm. we're not paying our workers well yeah. that's
5: what the national union of <laughs> workers wants they want the supermarkets yeah. to be held more accountable yeah. um so if you agree with them you should go to megaphone.com and sign their petition
4: mm, can you remind us what the petition's called
5: sure so the petition is called uh Coles and woolworths must end labor exploitation on their farms
4: Wonderful. Uh, that was a
2: smooth, smooth <laughs> transition. <laughs> <laughs>
4: um, we're going to throw to some community announcements, and we'll be right back with some more alternative news. This time, focusing a bit more locally. Red alert! Numbers are needed at the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japarang country need protecting. Over 50
0: generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old.
4: These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The campaign to protect country is led
0: by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can
4: help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat. Or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit
5: dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty.
4: You're listening to 3CR 855
2: AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au
6: a 3CR supporter.
4: You're listening to 3CR.
7: It seems that someone attending the protest, attending IMARC, has just left the building. And protesters are gathering around him as he crosses the road there is currently a number of police who have surrounded a single person and now a crowd that are being corralled by police they're moving quite physically up against each other a line of police horses is blocking off the road is um, between the road and the convention center to prevent people from going onto the road and blocking traffic Police are gathering in a circle around a number of, pro- number of protesters. They're chanting. There's quite a bit of media around recording. It's difficult to see from this position, from the number of people, what exactly is happening. But there's definitely a person leaving the convention center who is attending the conference, who is having, who's having quite a few protesters chanting at them. There is a second blockade that has moved closer to the police by the road. They have linked arms and they are standing at least no more than five or ten centimetres away from the police. So the police are effectively almost linked arms again in front of the protesters who are linked arms. Behind those standing police are the mounted police. There's six mounted police right directly behind a line of standing police between the road and the convention center with a closer blockade of protesters who have linked arms and are chanting at the police. There's a blockade, there's a, blockade a block of mounted police preventing people from going further down Clarendon Street. So people are, in effect, corralled into a space by the convention center um, between Clarendon Street and the river. So even if more people came down, which hopefully they will, as it fills up, it could potentially become quite a dangerous situation right next to the river where there's no barriers between the walkway and the water.
2: You're listening to 3CR. That was a report from um, our Tuesday breakfast team from yesterday at the IMARC conference. So yesterday to come out of the conference, I've kind of given a bit of an image of what the protest looks like. It was a big blockade uh, around Melbourne Convention Centre. But um, I just wanted to read now the legal observers' statement of concern. So this is a list of things that happened yesterday at the protest that legal observers have brought up as potentially illegal or dubious behaviour. So the first one is the excessive use of force. Legal observers have recorded multiple instances, instances of police shoving and pulling protesters with such force that they were propelled to the ground. And I have to say from my experience being there, uh, people were being tackled in groups of four, six or eight Policemen at one time, um, and it was, it was and that was
4: four six or eight police per one per one individual, individual yes,
2: um, there were also times where I saw um, policemen tackling in particularly uh, in particular marshals, so people who were organizing the blockade uh, so take directly taking them to the ground, and that seemed to me quite targeted. Uh, the next one was the use of mounted horses in crowd control, so there was the notice there was um, horses towards the uh, entrance the, the, the main entrance of IMARC. And police mounted a branch that had been um, recorded moving directly into crowds to push back protesters. This resulted in multiple injuries, um, including one activist at 8 o'clock who received a medical attention by emergency service workers for a suspected broken arm and leg. So there were cases of horses Again, yeah, being pushed into the crowd. Um, The horses also seemed to be spooked by, uh, we had a massive earth kind of hovering ball earth at the front of the centre. The horses got very spooked by that. Mm. And um, the legal observers have noticed that by saying that maybe the Victorian police need to reassess their use of horses or definitely need to reassess their use of horses Mm. within the coming days of the event. There was also the use of capsicum spray, spray and police batons. So legal observers recorded that police have Police officers used police batons to strike and push back protesters. OC foam and OC spray were also used multiple times. Conventionally Um, known as capsicum spray. Conventionally known as capsicum spray. Thank you very much. It was also noticed that um, one journalist was affected by the foam, as well as legal observers um, recording that they were getting shoved themselves. So legal observers are supposed to be a third party there who don't get involved in the conflict and shouldn't be like they're wearing big pink high vests so the police don't. Um, involved them in the conflict, but they were actually experiencing, um, yeah, getting shoved and pushed around a bit. And the last one was the removal by police officers of identification name tags and the refusal to give identification when asked. Uh, so this is a massive one. Um, legal observers uh, saw that multiple police officers purposely removed their name badges and turned them around to obscure their identification. By refusing to move mark protesters, um, It was. it was kind of very worrying because we did see uh, examples of excessive force or what legal observers have called excessive force. And, yeah, when pushed for their names, legal observers asking police officers for their names, uh, police officers actually denied that. Mm. So that's a massive one. And it really was seen in the tone of the day. I mean, we had a lot of different chants. We started off with um, a real First Nations kind of focus, always was, you know, always is Aboriginal land, which was fantastic. Uh, we then moved into kind of more environmentally concerned ones. But as the registration opened at eight o'clock, due to the police excessive use of force, it really did change to stuff like a uh, kind of chance around, hey, we have the right to demonstrate, mm-hmm. um, which I think, like, it was, it was really interesting because being down there, you could really feel the tone shift in the focus. It was less environmental for a, a bit there. It was much more kind of like, hey, hey we we this is a perfectly peaceful blockade. Mm-hmm. And when... Businessmen were pushing themselves through. At times they were like jumping into the blockade mm. and they were relying, they were relying on police bailing them out for yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah.
4: Like men in suits diving headlong into men the, in suits. the blockade.
2: We had one man kind of walk up to us kind of clapping along with the protest and then just immediately dive into two mm. two people and the police basically uh, were responsible for pushing and again using batons to get people away and get him safely through the blockade. Mm. Mm. So, they, so they, they're
4: really there on behalf, as, it, like through their behaviour you could see that the police are there on behalf of the um, delegates attending the conference. Absolutely, that
2: absolutely. I and I also want to make the note that there were 300 police officers and there's going to be continued 300 police officers' mm. presence at. The um, blockade. So that's a huge number of people, and they really were shifting their weight around. You know, you'd have police leave, and then you'd have police come back. You'd have police focused on sections of the blockade. So it wasn't it wasn't necessarily intimidating, but it did create this very much this deliberate air of what focus points they were having, Mm. Um, and those had really those areas were really tense. So on one part, it was mainly around the entrance. There were a lot of police around the main entrance. Um, People had been chanting for about five minutes, and one police officer behind us just snapped and kind of went, pushed, decided to push the crowd back out. Mm. So it was that sort of like, it was really hard to see when when force was coming or when kind of an outbreak of uh, Mm -hmm. was going to come. There was one last point I wanted to make, but I can't remember it right now. So we might quickly... Uh flick to the legal observer. I think we have recordings here.
4: Yes, we have a recording of an um a legal observer, I believe, from the Melbourne Activists um yeah. support a legal support organization. Um uh with some uh observations of yesterday. So yeah,
2: I actually um, recorded this earlier <laughs> this morning. Around eight o'clock. This is just yesterday when morning. the main so yesterday morning. Yeah. <laughs> uh this is when one of the main uh kind of yeah, conflicts had happened, I suppose. And yeah, she kinda gives us an update on what's happening. So
0: really hectic scenes down here at the Convention Centre, particularly as registration has now opened and we're seeing more of the delegates trying to enter the building. Um, there being um, protesters are chanting at times trying to block them entering and what we're seeing is police coming in um, snatch squads of four, six, eight police officers at the time targeting individuals, pushing them to the ground using excessive force in doing so just before OC foam was deployed against a crowd of people, whilst about eight police officers were holding one protester down. Earlier today, we saw police horses being used as a form of crowd control, pushing right up against a crowd that was blockading the front of the entrance in a way that is inherently dangerous and a really inappropriate use of police horses and so- um, as crowd control.
2: Right, and so how is it for you as a legal observer? Are you in any danger?
0: So we're really shocked to see the amount of violence and the excessive use of force that we're seeing and there's so much happening at different places that it's really difficult for our team to be observing everything that is that is happening here. So We're also concerned that legal observers have been pushed by police while we are monitoring when our role is to... You know, observe to ensure that people can exercise our rights to peaceful protest. Um, I'll leave it to the protest organisers to put a call out for um, more people to come down.
2: As you can hear, there were yeah really hectic scenes, and legal observers have put that um, statement of concern up on their website. You can so you can look up Melbourne Activist Legal Support. I also suggest if you're still finding this kind of what what this process looks like hard to gauge, check out iMark. Their blockade iMark is on Facebook and they do have kind of some videos from yesterday which are frankly shocking. Mm. Um, The last thing I wanted to kind of update us on is what's happening today. So the blockade continues from 6 o'clock this morning. So if you were there at 6.30, you were led through a meditation, which was quite nice. Um, But at 10 o'clock, Adam Bant, from the green, the green senator will be um, talking at the blockade, and then later we'll be also hearing at 10:10 we'll be hearing from the Itura um, community at the blockade. 10:30 the West Papua people at the blockade, and then 12 o'clock stop Oceana Gold. Then oh sorry my mistake, two o'clock grindcore against IMARC, and six o'clock IMARC, and there'll be a big uh, final dance scene to kind of end the day so there's stuff happening throughout the day at four and five o'clock there will be a debrief debrief and all-in meeting which is great if you are attending the protest and kind of want to just go through what you've yeah or the demonstration go through what you've experienced and stuff like that so definitely get down there if you're interested uh again there'll be some amazing speakers from some really important community voices that we just don't hear Mm. So it's going to be a wonderful protest. And I have to say, as much as it was very hectic, as described in that little segment we just hear, mm. heard, it was a wonderful feeling. There was a really coming, uh, sense of coming together, a lot of different activists from different backgrounds, all uniting under one cause. Yeah. Uh,
4: so you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Up next, we're going to be uh, hearing an interview that Jess did earlier with a, um, an independent protester in Lebanon. Uh, so stay tuned. You're listening to 3CR.
8: For the it's past week, protests have erupted all over Lebanon. The protests come after a worsening economic crisis in Lebanon that many blame on the small number of sectarian politicians who have ruled Lebanon since this 15-year civil war ended in 1990. President Aoun has pleaded with crowds to enter talks, but in central Beirut, many are not happy with this. We have Neymar on today to talk to us about the protests. He's in Beirut right now. Hi Neymar.
9: Good morning, how are you?
8: I'm great, how are you?
9: I'm doing well thanks. That's
8: thanks. great. Um, first thing I think we all just like to know, uh, what are the people in Beirut actually protesting for right now?
9: Uh, uh, well, um, uh, first uh, the movement that, that is happening in Beirut and uh, and the cities all over Lebanon uh, it's coming only from the people, not uh, following any politicians uh, or uh, 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 any politician. Uh, what I mean, none of the politicians ask for uh, the people to be on the streets. Mm. They just made this movement from them, from themselves, from uh, to, to ask for their rights. And people ha- has many rights in Uh First. Uh, I would like to start with the, with the taxes that the, the government are putting on the people every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's becoming so much, especially uh, uh, people around the world think that uh, the last tax they put on us is uh, on the WhatsApp calls. Mm. But it's not, it's not the main reason uh, that people on the seat of course, people went to the streets, of course, uh, but uh, people are asking first. Uh, uh, we we want a revocation for 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 the council of ministers.
10: Mm-hmm.
9: We want uh, we want all the politicians to be dropped from the government, mm-hmm. and uh, and to have a new selection mm-hmm. that uh, that comes from the people not from the old politicians that uh, that that were that were uh, sorry about my english by the way no, no, that's good, I'm <laughs> you're doing bad. great no it's okay don't worry about uh, <laughs> uh, we don't want the politicians uh, that that was part in the war mm-hmm. to be to, to be part of our go- of, of our new government so
8: yeah so what you're saying is since the last since the last um war that ended in 1990 you now the younger generation you're asking for more different politicians that you know see your points of view is that sort of what you're asking for
9: yes that that's true actually mm-hmm. um people are asking as well for the i don't know how to say it but i guess it's ensure aging
8: yeah yeah the insurance for the aging yeah yeah
9: true yeah uh we want to return our stolen money, mm-hmm. which is actually is about 320 million, million dollars
10: mm-hmm.
9: that stolen from the, 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 the politician that is still ruling Lebanon. Mm-hmm.
10: Uh,
9: we want to use the money for the, the country benefits, find job opportunities for the youth mm-hmm. instead of, um, of pushing them to travel actually because in Lebanon, whenever uh, someone graduated from the university, his main, his main goal is to find a job outside Lebanon. Yeah. And we want, I, and we want that to stop
8: yeah so you're trying to um I'm, I'm I guess it's like a lot there's a whole list of problems that you're not happy with stemming from the old politicians where now you're seeing things from um insurance um versus taxes versus jobs for the um younger people yeah. as well as all ages sort of that's what you're mm-hmm. asking
9: too of course mm-hmm. that's what we are asking mm-hmm. for that's what that's why we are on the streets mm-hmm. uh uh, another thing we wanted to separate, not, of, not all of us, but most of the people on the street want to separate the, the religion from the state.
8: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, yeah, I feel uh, like it's a quite a amongst the young people, because I was actually, as you know, <laughs> I was in Beirut um, to, a few months ago. And even I felt that um, when I spoke to a lot of the young people, especially, um, they'd said that they would like to separate religion from the state. And I guess
9: that's, an, that's a main right for us, mm-hmm. actually.
8: It's a main right. Is that, is that, preval, is that um, a big thing with these protests?
9: Of course it is, because it's, it, it all will started from this point.
8: Mm-hmm. So it all started from
9: uh, there. W- w- when, when you separate religion from the state in Lebanon, that means you separate also political views
8: mm. Yeah.
9: from the state as well. Definitely. Because uh, because most of the politicians here uh, are are like uh, a part of a of a religion.
8: Mm-hmm. They are yeah because um, so if
9: you if you are Christian if you are Christian you have to to be with a specific uh, a specific part which oh. is the uh, Lebanese forces or or the or the was uh, Michel Aoun and Gibran and Basile, for example.
8: Yes, yeah, and um, how uh, Prime Minister Hariri is um, Muslim. Is he, like, the Prime Minister needs to be Muslim Sorry. and the um, uh, President needs to be Christian? Is that how it is?
9: Sorry, I didn't get
8: you. Uh, Christian in uh, for the Prime Minister and uh, Muslim for the true, President? True, is that how, true, or the other way around? True, that, that, yeah.
9: Now, Christian for the president. That's right. And Muslim for the. Sunni for the. For the prime minister. Mm-hmm.
8: And so your whole sort of um, government is split by these different uh, religious groups. Is that. And you're trying to sort of eradicate that? Is that what your, the protesters are asking for? That's you
9: of? what I'm trying to. Yeah, that's what we are trying to get, actually.
8: Okay. Uh, and you think uh, this is but, the root
9: cause? Uh, yeah, but uh, also we have. We need to. Uh, uh, have to a trial for the uh, like the people of the corruption you know what I mean yes you want to put you want to
8: hold them accountable true Mm
9: -hmm. true especially especially like you have five six politicians in Lebanon that that are the main people who stole the uh, the uh, how to say uh, public money
8: yeah so they've taken the public's money yeah
9: uh, uh, and holding it in uh, other countries, uh, m- most of them in Switzerland,
8: mm-hmm.
9: in the banks of Switzerland.
8: Overseas banks, mm-hmm. and you, sort of, mm. you you're asking for a change to this. Is this sort of so all of these reasons all coming together? Is this um why how so, so only a few hours ago your president Ayun. Hey, he pleaded with the crowds to enter talks in central Beirut, but many from the crowds have, or a lot of protesters have said, no, we don 't want to talk to you, we want to do it or not how do you want uh, how do you uh, want to see change
9: actually uh, the change will start uh, with them dropping all their uh, places mm-hmm. i mean like we don 't want town to be a president, we don 't want to be a prime minister, mm-hmm. we just want them to to live and give chances to people who wants to work for this country. Yeah. Because uh, the people doesn't trust them anymore.
3: Mm-hmm.
9: Even if they go on the televisions and uh, um, uh, talk to the people uh, like Michelle did yesterday, mm-hmm. we don't we don't we don't trust them anymore. They they keep saying that these words like years ago. Mm-hmm. We will work for this country. We will try to find a way for the a solution for the for the corruption that is happening, and they are just words. That's why we don't trust them, we don't want to hear them. That's why you are staying on the seat even after what they talk
8: mm. about. Definitely. And do you... So when... Do you have elections coming up? Is there any sort of way that you can get people re-elected? Or do you think that um, sort of corruption may get in the way, or...? <coughs>
9: uh, pff, actually, if uh, if if they drop their places mm-hmm. we can have a early election because the, the main election would be would, would take place in 3 years mm-hmm. so if, if if they don't leave they will be in their uh, in their places for 3 more years and that's of course not accepted
8: it's not yeah you can't you're not ex- you're not accepting that yes
9: it's not well, of course we're not accepting that mm-hmm. uh plus uh, some part of Lebanon, you know, they are supporting Michel Aoun. Yes. Mm-hmm. We are not, uh, but most of the people like, uh, on the news, they put like, we have two, me- two, two millions of Lebanese people on the street mm-hmm. protesting. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is like a big part of mm-hmm. Lebanon. Plus the people who are supporting from their homes on the, on the social media. They don't fight to on the streets but they are top supporting the case mm. so it's more than than half of course
8: definitely and so do your obviously the aim is to these protests that to put pressure on these politicians to step down and do you think it could happen how long do you think this may take if if it happens
9: uh, uh while well, uh, looking at other countries who who had the same case at, at uh, as uh, as our case mm-hmm. they stayed in the streets for 2 3 weeks 4 weeks even more okay, yeah. and they didn't they didn't give up so that's what we want to do yeah. we won't give up
8: definitely no and from what i saw and what i've heard and the people that i met there he- Everyone is just so strong in Lebanon, and you know they do want change. So hopefully it does happen.
9: Plus we are, we are showing all the world what are we, what what kind of people we are, what like like what kind of life we deserve here in Lebanon. Exactly. We came here to Lebanon. We, we saw people how how people are so friendly. Yeah. Life is amazing in Lebanon. Uh, people love to to enjoy their lives in a peaceful way.
8: They do, yeah. And I think you so, you deserve it, so, yeah
9: that's what what we want mm-hmm. actually we want to to stay in lebanon not to leave not uh, we don't we don't want to our, our dream to be just to have a, to have a job in in other countries yeah. we just wanted to, to live here we want to keep the business man that lives outside lebanon from like they are lebanese to come to to make their to do the, the, their business here
10: mm-hmm.
9: to to create a, uh, job opportunities for the young people.
8: Mm-hmm. Definitely, no. Um, and how, just this is, this will be the last question, Neymar, thank you. But how are the crowds? Uh, are you, how is it, how are you all feeling? Are you feeling hopeful? Are you feeling, you seem very hopeful, but are the crowds hopeful? Are they still standing strong? How many people, uh, is, is it the streets of Beirut filled with people or?
9: Uh, you have uh, the Riad Salah area in Beirut. That in downtown is full of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have, for example, in Tripoli, you have a sit-in in every city. Mm-hmm. And some, in some cities, uh, roads are closed. For example, Jbel, Jaladib, Zu mm-hmm. Those roads are closed uh, because we don't want to. To have a normal movement in Lebanon, we don't want people to go to their jobs. We want uh, our people to unite together for our goal.
8: Yes, mm-hmm. definitely. So uh,
9: and of course, uh, this uh, even one time pass, even with, with time passing, we are staying strong. We are, we, are, we are keeping the hope, of course, and it's increasing day by day. We're not, we're not giving up, of
8: course. Mm. That's that's amazing. And I, I honestly, we wish you all the best here Thanks in a lot. Melbourne. Thanks a lot. Um, and, and, and I'm sure will, we'll talk will, soon. I
9: appreciate your support, of course.
8: No worries. We, we have your back. You're listening to 3CR. Thank you so much, Neymar, for joining us.
4: And thank you, Jess, for that fantastic interview with Neymar, a independent protester living in Lebanon. Uh, we're going to be moving on now to a completely different interview. We're speaking to Jasmine Seymour, who is an author and educator and thinks that people need to learn this land's first languages much more than we need to learn Chinese or French, which is currently what's available at schools. Um, Jasmine has written a book, Kui Midiga, which incorporates some of the Darug Darug language into the text of the book. And it's a beautiful, um, book, which we're going to be talking about today. Jasmine, are you there? I am. Hi. Good morning. Um, thanks for joining us on 3CR. No problem. Thank you so much for
11: having me.
4: Um, so f- we really wanted to talk to you about your book, Kui Midagar, um, and about the way in which you incorporate the Darug language into, um, into the storytelling. But first of all, can you tell us a bit about the Darug language, where it's spoken and how, th- how well the language has fared since colonisation?
11: Sure. The, the Darragh language um, is the language of the Sydney Basin area, so all the way from the shores of the Opera House to the Blue Mountains. We all belong to the Darragh language um, group, and we consider ourselves to be Darig people. Mm. And so colonisation, of course, really stops um, language because of... The, you know of marrying into white families and stopping culture little bits of it continued but much of the knowledge that we have of the Darug language comes from William Dawes who um, is famously the, the the stargazer the astronomer of the first fleet and so his relationship with the Darug people um, is is where we get much of our language from because he recorded. Um, many of the, many of the words of those people. So we have that record and we also have our oral histories and our oral, oral language that's been passed down through families. And so we're really getting a resurgence of, of Dharug people really wanting to have Dharug language out there in the world because many of the iconic Australian words come from the Dharug language like Kui, which of course, um, which for us is the it's the call of the whipbird, and that means come here. And we also have um, warata, which comes from Waradah, our warata here. And um, wombat as well. That is a direct word. So there are many more words like that, and we just think it is so rich and wonderful, and it's really exciting to be part of.
4: Mm. And it was this pride in your your language, your people's language, that led you to to write this book. And you incorporate so much language into the book. It's a children's book, yes.
11: It is. It's a children's book. So it's we invite you to Wee to come here, friend, and walk on our country, to walk on the songlines of our creation, Ancest people. And as you walk out onto country, we um, we tell you about the skyscape and the Aboriginal geography, and we. We tell you the names of our totems and our plants and and it's we the way that I wanted to write it was that this language just fitted seamlessly into English as well, so all the real names of things were um, are in the book and because it's really important that we remember that Sydney was and still is an Aboriginal place first of all.
4: Mm. And, um, it really, actually, no, I wanted to ask you, um, just quickly also to introduce the, um, the illustrator on your book as well. Um, could you tell us a bit about Leanne Mulgo Watson?
11: Yeah, Leanne is, um, a Dharad woman. She is the daughter of one of our elders, um, Auntie Edna Watson. Auntie was one of the first elders into the schools out here in Sydney. And, um, Leanne has a, a very strong connection to country and has been working with museums and a community for many, many years. And it was her pictures at first that really inspired the writing because we, I was looking at her pictures. She's a good friend of mine. And, I, and they, they they tell stories like great Indigenous pictures, pictures do. And I just said to her, we really need to turn this into a book of language for our kids because there are no Derek language picture books around. And we just... We just felt like we really needed to make that.
4: Mm. And so you're hoping that this book will be a, a teaching tool for Derek kids to to learn some of those words, is that right?
11: Absolutely. So the, at the moment, all across Australia, one of the most searchable things on Google is how to um, is Aboriginal resources because it is such a huge part of the Australian curriculum, and. We know that teachers are really looking for this material, but it's not only for, um, for students, of course. It's for um, adults and anyone who lives on Barrow Country, anyone who visits Sydney. It can also be used on other countries for you to explore your own landscapes and your own language.
4: Mm. So um, we're we're currently, I'm currently interviewing you in the context of some very big protests that are happening down here in Melbourne. There's a blockade of a a mining conference, and I've got, I've kind of got that fresh in the back of my mind. um, In the way that your book, all of the language that's used is so strongly linked to land and country and peoples, um, the Darrick peoples' connection to their land and country. Um, How how would you describe the link between land and um, language?
11: Well, language is is the words of our creation people, it's the words of our dreaming, and they are heavily tied to Aboriginal landscapes because many of the places that you walk across country aren't just rocks or hills. They're actually either ancestors or um, sacred sites or places of huge significance for Indigenous people. So language is incredibly important to for Aboriginal landscapes and for
4: people to understand the land. Mm. Um, so, of course, we're interviewing you from Wurundjeri Country. Um, they use different language here. And so uh, I suppose I was wondering what you think the value for people outside of Darragh Country. You've already you've already touched on this a bit, but the, the value for people outside of Darragh Country reading your
9: book would be?
11: Well, I think, um, like, you, you had that beautiful book down there of the, um, Willem, I believe, in, um, Melbourne Mm. about the river. That was such a beautiful book. And that book can be used on other countries to explore your own rivers. And you can go out using that book as a guide and looking, having students look at the landscapes the way that Kiwi can, um, be used the same way on other people's countries it's a stepping stone for you to have a conversation with the custodians and the elders in your own area because what we want is for all people to have a relationship with the land you know we we all belong here and and we need to celebrate our indigenous stories and our indigenous peoples and we really need to just get behind it and and that act in itself such a powerful act of reconciliation if we can all just appreciate the beauty of this amazing country that we all share.
4: Mm, Thank you for that. Um, So can you remind us when um, your book is coming out?
11: Yeah, Kiwi Mitiga will be out on Friday and you can buy it from all bookshops and online stores and especially from our wonderful publisher Magabala Books in Broome. I really recommend you go and check out all of their books. They're such a wonderful um, Indigenous publisher and they have many, many gorgeous books. So definitely check that out.
4: Thank you so much. I've been speaking to Darug, educator and writer and also illustrator of previous books, uh, Jasmine Seymour. Uh, We've been speaking about her newest book, Kui Midiga. Jasmine, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR. You're
11: so welcome. Thank you. Have a good day.
4: You too. You're listening to 3CR...
2: Next. Next up, we going we're going to have a uh, small section from Jess, who is currently at IMARC, just updating us. Uh, this was a 7.30 update, so, yeah, things might have changed, but we'll hear what's going on.
8: Okay, so it's 7.35, and I'm in front of the Melbourne Convention Exhibition Centre for the IMARC blockade. I've spoken to a few people um, they who were actually here yesterday as well, and I've asked them whether they're expecting the same thing as yesterday with the arrest and the police brutality. And they've said that the police actually are similar, that they've spotted the same police from yesterday. Um, and they've got, they seem to be a lot more intense than yesterday. Um, there's The horses are already blockading and they've actually sort of started to get into the crowds. And people have become really concerned because of the horses in the crowds, for the horses' sake and the people. Um, we've also got, you know, people coming into the convention centre now um, with the protesters really trying to sort of intimidate them, you know, try and get their morale into question with, uh, as well as they going to the building. So we're waiting here at 22 and um, so yeah, everyone thinks that at 8am it's going to really start to roam up even more so than it already has. Excellent.
4: You're listening to 3CR, Up Next is a song. This is Always Be Here by Archie Roach.
3: I can't I Mend your broken heart Oh, I'm sorry I don't know where to start Won't you help me So I can't help to I love you and I'm here today just like, like yesterday. yesterday and the day before that my day
6: you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 03 9419 8377 You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS or simply post your cheque or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to.
4: You are listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. It's just gone past 8 o'clock and we're here with another interview for you. Um, So... Some folks listening may already know, but Australia's welfare system is particularly punitive against women and against um, other people who are traditionally marginalised. Um, and so we wanted to speak about a bit about how programs like Parents Next in particular are very punitive against women. We've got um, uh, activist and social welfare justice um, particularly outspoken person, Ella Buckland, on the phone to talk to us a bit more about this. Good morning, Ella.
12: Good morning. Hi,
4: everyone. Thanks for joining us. Um, So I thought we might first um, reference the fact that um, Food Bank has come out with a report. They come out with this report every year. It's the 2019 Food Bank Report on Hunger, um, which reports that women are 50% more likely to experience Food insecurity, and I imagine this insecurity isn't happening against. In fact, the the report states that the insecurity is not hitting the most well-off people in our society, but rather people who are more likely to be on um, uh, to be receiving benefits like um, the parenting payment, or to be on programs like Parents Next. And does does this surprise you at all? The the fact that people, um, uh, women in particular, are more likely to experience food insecurity. Oh,
12: uh, absolutely not. Um, I think that sole parent families are particularly um, sort of hit by any kind of punitive um, system. Um, 32% of sole parent families live in poverty. Uh, 82% of sole parents are women. So, you know, you can kind of see what's happening there. Mm. Um, And I know through the work that I've done... um, Women will come to me and say, Look, I've been doing okay and now I'm in this parents next program and um you know, they've suspended my payment for some arbitrary reason and now I can't pay my rent and now I have uh, uh you know, a black mark against my name and mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of a couple of steps down to homelessness for these women. Mm-hmm. Already living on the edge and, and these kind of programs that you know say that they're going to help actually you know further uh, make you know they make it harder for these women.
4: Yeah, I did I did use the word punitive before, and I I might want to drill down for our listeners a bit more what that means. Um, so you referred just now as um, to to people having their payments cut. What are the the many reasons why someone would have their payments cut?
12: <laughs> for for any reason, there's, there could be a glitch in the system. Um, the uh, the appointments are supposed to happen once every three months with your parents' next provider, but they often happen more regularly. Um, so uh, they're supposed to ring at a certain time, and then they don't ring, uh, and then the woman gets a I'm saying women because I mostly deal with women a woman will get a notification saying your payment has suspended, and they're like, well, no one rang me, um, and then they have to go through that whole process of making contact with their provider and or Centrelink, which as everyone knows is a horrific process, particularly with Centrelink. Um, And then, you know, not, I don't think there's much sort of surveillance around attending activities, but a lot of the providers get around this by forcing women to to do sort of in-house courses, um, like resume writing, so the women will come in and they'll have to watch a video on YouTube about how to write a resume um, so you know if they don't show up to that then their payments will be suspended. There was a woman who was in hospital with her she just given birth to a premature baby uh, unexpectedly and her payments were suspended because she
4: couldn't make contact with the provider. Mm. And that's not an uncommon story, story of there are Many stories of women who have children in hospital or who themselves have to go to hospital, often relating to to the child that they are receiving the pa- uh, the parenting payment for, and not being able to make um, their appointments with their parents next provider, and so they have their their payments cut off that way. Is is that um, the only way in which Parents Next is um, particularly sexist that it doesn't allow for um, the the particular um, responsibilities often that that single mothers have?
12: I think um, it's particularly sexist because it doesn't acknowledge the work that parents are doing Um, and there's this sort of paternalistic patriarchal, misogynistic crap about um, you know parenting not being work like becoming a parent has been the hardest job I've ever done and then you know, you work on top of that and, and you're sort of doing two jobs for hardly any money because it's hard to get a job that's flexible. Um, so I think that... And, and this sort of surveillance of of parenting. So, you know, the the activities women have to do aren't... You know, it's a pre-employment program, but the activities that women are having to do are mm. things like going to, to the library, or go to story time, or go to play group, or take their child to swimming lessons. It's like,
4: Mm.
12: whose idea of of what parenting is are we having to
11: sort of live by? Mm.
4: Um, To refresh our listeners' memories as to what Parents Next is if you haven't experienced the program, it's a program whereby um, if you are on the parenting payment for over a certain specified period of time, um, then you're required, and for, for a child who's... Under six, I believe, is that right? You're required to go into a work readiness program, is that right?
12: Yeah, the child is. Um, it's from when the youngest turns six months old, mm. and then you go into a sort of pre-employment program. Mm.
4: Yeah. yeah, and so as this pre-employment program you you mention forces people who are on the programs to to go to various fairly meaningless but also very paternalistic. Um, uh, parenting related classes like taking your child to story time at the library and that's what you were mentioning just now. Yeah. Mm.
5: yeah. Hi, hello My name's Lois. Hi. I've got a question for you about some of the um the reporting that um people receiving the parents next um money you have to do. Um, I can see that you've got a change.org petition that's reached almost 50,000 um, signatures and some of the things that you want people to know is that um, those on Parent Next only need to have an appointment with their provider once every three months and if they're studying and that's their only activity they should only report their attendance once a week. Have you um, heard from people that are being told by Centrelink that they need to be constantly providing them with information about their activities?
12: Um, Well, they don't usually hear from Centrelink. They'll hear from their provider, Mm -hmm. um, their parent's next provider. But yes, there's everything in between what what should be happening and then the worst case scenario of um, having to report more frequently, having to attend appointments more frequently, being forced to sign documents, all of those sort of things.
5: And why is it so inconsistent that there are rules about how it should run and be organised but then that's not what's happening for the individuals that, you know, are involved?
12: Well, I'm not sure if it's deliberate miscommunication or just them being particularly stupid, but it's um, what, what I'm seeing is that the... There's the specific legislation or the guidelines that, um, you know, describe how Parents Next is supposed to be run. And then there are the provider guidelines, um, which are issued by the Department of Jobs or Centrelink or whoever it is who runs the hard to find out who. Um, And providers are... uh, You know, it's clear in the guidelines how it's supposed to run, but then, you know, women will go in and and say, well, I know that I don't have to have an appointment with my provider you know, more frequently than once every three months. And the provider will say, no, 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 we've made our own guidelines, um, and then these are our guidelines, and, and we get to do whatever we want. And that's actually not true, but because the Department of Jobs really don't give a shit whether or not the providers are following their guidelines, there's no sort of surveillance, there's no, there's no recourse, there's no, there's no way to, you know, these sort of disempowered women to to go anywhere and fight that.
10: Mm-hmm.
4: Now, a big part of your concern um, the last time we spoke was that Parents Next should be made voluntary. Um, if it were a work readiness program that people should enter and, and want to engage in, it should be voluntary rather than compulsory and punitive. Um, to wrap up the interview, can you give us a bit of an idea of where that is, if there's been any progress on, on making it voluntary, or if not, um, how people listening can help?
12: Well, the, we went to the inquiry, and um, Labor came out pretty weak in that, um, going into the election. So there really wasn't... And the Libs obviously thought that you know, no change needed to be made. It's wonderful program Um, so we didn't we didn't really do very well Um, but what we have done is we've sort of given the Department of Jobs really bad couple of days in there and they've had to change a couple of things um, about how Parents Next is run. So women have to report less often uh, and um, but that, I mean that's about it. Mm. So we're still we're still going with it. I know that there are a lot of organisations focused on parents next, um, but we're just really hoping that Labor will actually do something for the next election and stop you know stop being such
4: soft cocks. Mm, step up to the plate and show some leadership.
12: Yeah, and and really think about you know there's a there's a large sort of cohort of voters who are unemployed as we you know through the Australian Unemployed Workers Union who are great, um, and there's a lot of single parents and sole parents um, who are caught up in this system and I, I, yeah hopefully something will change in the
4: future. Mm. Thank you very much for that, Ella. Um, I've been speaking to Ella Buckland, who is a welfare justice advocate and Parents Next critic. Um, Ella, thanks for joining us on 3CR. Thanks, everyone. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Um, We're crossing now live to um, the Melbourne Exhibition Centre. Is that right, to to speak to Jess, who's giving us a live update?
2: Yep, Jess is on the line and ready to tell us what's going on. Good morning, Jess. Morning, guys. How are you?
4: We're going well. Are you all right?
2: Yes, no, I'm good. Yeah, found a uh, safe spot. <laughs> so, could you kind of give us a little bit of a description of the scene, as uh, so we don't have eyes on the ground, and kind of let us know yeah. what, what's going on? Definitely.
8: So, as you guys probably already know, it was obviously at the International Mining and Resource Conference. Um, we're on. I'm on Clarendon Street right now, where the blockade is. Um, when I first got here, it was like twenty past seven, and there was like quite a hustle. Actually, the horses. Um, we're getting a bit riled up. The um, police were on the horses, like, trying to set people back. Apparently someone was um, detained um, when they were sort of trying to stop the um, people going into the conference. Okay. Um, it, they, the police have done the blockade now. It's all set up. And people, it's relatively, it's quite, it's going well right now. Um, there's just a lot of, yeah, people are quite calm right now, but the um, I think the police are quite. I've spoken to a lot of people, and the, uh, they've said that the um, police have sort of spiked up from yesterday. There's quite a few more, and um, they seem a lot more intense and ready. If that yeah gives a little background to it.
2: Okay, and the as you said, there were 40. Um, by by 8:30 yesterday, there had been 20 arrests, and later throughout yeah. the day, 40 arrests. Have we seen yeah. that similar sort of um, people being arrested?
8: Um, so there was apparently 40 arrests yesterday. 20 were detained. Um, today, as I said, there was I think one person detained, and we're not sure whether they have been arrested yet. But um, when they the police got quite, um, uh, they were in, they were in the protest. Like the protesters were just you know chanting, you know going at it, and um, the police did sort of push back quite hard. And that's when um, that one person, I people, I'm pretty sure they have been detained. Yeah.
2: Mm, okay, okay. And uh, as you said, probably a little bit of escalating tensions and stuff like that. Uh, uh-huh. Is there any other kind of details that we should know about or uh, is there any uh, people coming down? Do you think pe- more people are likely to join the protest?
8: Yeah, so um, a lot of people said that there, there's still a lot of people here, but not mm-hmm. as many as yesterday. And apparently that's because there was a ball tonight. Where they, people are apparently trying to regain their energy for the next upcoming protest, but there are still so many people here. Um, The media's here. Um, Actually, so there was um, the F word Adani on a sign, and Mm -hmm. the media asked the protesters to block that, um, block that, uh, uh, swear word out as they tried to film. So it's really quite, it's just, seeing that sort of media and the police sort of like control this like it's just ridiculous like it's just it's a blockade like this is what we're allowed to do like we're the public it's just it's made people quite mad and especially the horses as well like it was very disgusting thing today and I can only imagine what it was like yesterday but even seeing them today when they were really getting into the crowds before yeah. yep. um it's just not on like it's just not needed like for the people here like they're literally just protesting. Like, it's not, they're out there, they've not done violence or anything like that. And it's just, yeah, I just feel like it's, everybody feels the same way sort of thing. So,
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And my last question, Jess, um, is just, yesterday we had a little bit of trouble with the doors. Now, have they updated mm-hmm. us? Have they locked the back and side doors? Uh, or are there currently multiple entrances that are open? Um, well, so I have asked about the
8: doors. There's apparently, like, 39 doors or something for this. But... Um, mm-hmm. There's the two main doors here. Mm -hmm. I think, I'm not sure whether they have been locked, but the police are focusing obviously on the Clarendon Street where the protesters are um, gathering. But there have been police rushing to and from the side. So I think maybe there may be some sort of... People are trying to get through those doors. But there's security everywhere, so yeah, I'm not sure whether they've been locked. But yeah, the main on Clarendon Street, that's I think where everyone's...
2: Wonderful. At, well, thank you. thank you so much, Jess, for giving us that update. We'll probably uh, have more coverage going throughout the day, especially at about 9 o'clock. We'll be hearing it's, uh, another live cross to...
4: Yeah, sea Limits will be doing a live limits. cross over to the IMA yeah, conference perfect. blockade.
2: Thank you, Will, <laughs> for fixing that. No All worries. right, talk to you soon, Jess.
8: No worries, guys. See ya.
4: And that was Jess uh, down on the ground at Clarendon Street where the IMARC blockade is happening right now. Uh, it'll continue throughout the day and we'll continue our coverage here on 3CR Community Radio. Uh, we're going to be playing some community announcements. We'll be right back hopefully with another interview. Stay tuned.
0: 3CR are selling Kofi'ah Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine.
6: A 3CR supporter.
0: We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t shirts, and so do we. They're 100% cotton and Australian made, and you can get one
5: for just $30. They come in black dark grey and a cool light grey To nab one of these beauties drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order
0: by phoning 94198377, or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop Come on, you know you want one
6: October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention
2: Centre. You're listening to 3CR. Next up, our last interview discussing the Ensuring Integrity Bill. A little bit of background on this. This is a Liberal initiative that was introduced earlier this year, which aims to ensure that unions and employer groups, are uh, so registered union organisations, work for their members and not themselves. That's the rhetoric we've been told from the Liberal Party Um, And this bill would effectively give federal courts the power to disqualify officials and cancel the registration of union organizations that are, again, liberal wording, deemed to commit serious offenses or have a record of law breaking. Uh, this has been passed through the Representative Chamber and is now currently up for its second reading debate in the Senate, meaning it's most likely to be voted on in November. We have Michelle O'Neill from the ACTU on the line to finish up our show with the discussion on the consequences that this bill could result in, installing, in the words of ACTU, a draconian and anti-democratic precedent. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning. So when the Liberals say that this bill is going to target organisations that work for themselves, not for their members... Who are they signalling and how could this be interpreted and applied to union organisations?
1: Well, they're actually targeting every worker in the country. They try and dress this up as if it's about, you know, a limited number of people or one union, but that is a complete smokescreen. The Mm. reality is that's attacking workers' organisations, trying to weaken our power and our capacity to organise workers, stand up for workers and actually win better paying conditions. So what it does is um, basically... Uh, conflate uh, what are civil breaches of things like the Fair Work Act with criminal breaches. There's already um, rigorous and quite, um, you know, uh, strong in terms of most other countries in the world, qualifi- um, uh, provisions in the law about disqualifying union officials and deregistering unions. There's absolutely no basis or need to make those harsher, but what this does is, for example, uh things like breaches of right of entry like where a union mm. organizer might say well if i give 24 hours notice of going into this workplace in my own experience as a clothing organizer then the sweatshop would be gone if you gave 24 hours notice mm. um, but that's technically a breach of the act uh and some a breach like that could lead to a union official being disqualified and never able um to you know lead or represent the members of their union. It could lead to them then facing criminal charges if they advise the union afterwards. could lead to the union itself being deregistered or a branch of the union and it could lead to that union not being able to amalgamate with another.
2: So am I right in sensing that this is a, a policy that is a war on workers and war on unions in particular?
1: Well, it, it, as I said, what it does, of course, is, um, is completely misrepresent the work that unions do, mm. but the real target of this is, you know, they're doing the the work of big business here, which is trying to make it uh, more difficult for workers to join together, win pay increases, make sure their workplaces are safe, mm. and uh, be able to improve their rights. So that's the ultimate aim. Uh, but the way that the government presents this is completely uh, disingenuous.
2: Mm. Absolutely, and this would give um, federal, the federal court the power to, as we said, disqualify officials and council registration um, of union organisations that are deemed to commit serious offences and have a record of law-breaking. Um, the word deemed seems very interpretive to me. How do you think this is going to be applied to union actions? Do you think we could see everything from, like, strikes to enterprise bargaining, uh, you know, kind of the, the union actions taken in there? Would they, would they kind of breach this agreement?
1: Absolutely. So it, it for example, would... Um Take any type of, um, action that workers take where they stop work in response to safety concerns or if they're trying to, um, deal with an, you know, they're finding out that someone's going to lose their job in the workplace or, or a very strong example that we talked about with the senators has been if you think about camp union campaigns like the campaign against James Hardy when they were literally um, you know restructuring their company after years and years of knowingly putting workers and the public at risk with products that were going to likely to kill them, mm. they were restructuring their company to take billions of dollars offshore so that there wasn 't enough money um, in compensation funds here for workers and members of the public that were sick and dying. It was the union movement that uh, took action. many workers took strike action, people were engaged in boycotts. There was a long campaign before eventually we won and built public support for it Uh, and then eventually, of course, succeeded in making sure that that money was brought back to Australia and that uh, people were properly compensated. But a whole lot of the activity that unionists took over that time under this law, if it Indeed. becomes law under this mm-hmm. bill, would have the union officials um, being disqualified, the union itself facing deregistration. And you can imagine that a company like James Party would have, because the other thing it does is let companies themselves or the minister take Um, These actions in the court Mm. You can imagine how quickly a company like that Would have been trying to get the key union Leaders disqualified And uh, their unions themselves Deregistered to stop that campaign
2: So it's absolutely disempowering the way Or disempowering unions from actually functioning As a union ought to Um, This bill has been fuelled throughout this year By controversies surrounding the CFMEU Just doing my research on the Liberal website It was the only union organisation That they used as their example So they're making a bit of a postable A boy about from it Um, They've stated that the CFMEU has racked up 2,000 breaches, an average of three every week, and $16.4 million in penalties, and that's their justification for an organisation that routinely breaches, you know, um, the agreements, union agreements. Is this bill directly tailored to this union, um, or is CMFEU kind of emblematic of a longer union battle with the Liberals? I mean, uh, where, where do these numbers come from? Do they have any justification?
1: Well, they've got no justification and they're trying to use um, one union to justify the law. And of course, it's not right or fair in relation to the CFMNEU mm. and it's not right or fair in relation to any union. Um, this is just a sort of deliberate stereotyping and inaccurately representing what the CFMN EU does as well as every other union and what we know about A whole lot of those breaches that Mm -hmm. the government talks about are are about a union in an industry that is one of the most dangerous industries that we have where workers' lives are regularly put at risk where you have companies that repeatedly show gross negligence resulting in workers' deaths where the directors of those companies aren't held to account, where those companies aren't deregistered as businesses. They just continue to trade um, and continue to operate with impunity, but they're trying to say that the problem is with the union. Mm -hmm. Many of those breaches are about issues to do with concern about safety, about workers taking action or officials going into work sites. Um, on, the, on that basis, so it is. It is both wrong in terms of how it represents the EU, but it also is wrong as a way of trying to suggest that. Um, it's only going to touch one union. Of course, it won't touch one
2: union. It will touch every union. Yeah, absolutely. So the rhetoric is uh, false sanctimonious and also lacking of context. And the last thing I wanted to say is you've mentioned that this bill is going to be draconian and anti-democratic. We do have to quickly wrap up, but could you just touch briefly on how that will be if this bill isn't installed?
1: Yeah, so, uh, of course it takes the control and many of the decision makers making away from ordinary rank and file members and elected leaders of the union. So it says things like that, um, you can have an administrator appointed by, whereby the minister, um, going to the federal court and having, you know, a company like KPMG put in place to run a union, um, which would take all of the democratic control away from the members. It also takes the, rights of members to vote on things like amalgamation and says Mm. that... Um, there should be a test that allows employers to say whether it's in the interest of bosses that a union would amalgamate with another one. So these are fundamentally anti-democratic and it's part of this move by a government generally to become this government to become more authoritarian. And uh, we've seen that with other things, including, you know, responses to freedom of the press. But this is an Absolutely. extreme bit of law. There's no equivalent anywhere else in the Western world.
2: Well, thank you so much, Michelle. Um, we're going to say goodbye to you now, but thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, Raymond. Bye. Bye. And that was Michelle just talking about um, the Ensuring Integrity Bill. Just before that, we had Jess at the live at the IMARC conference. Uh, definitely get down there if you're free today and interested. At eight o'clock, we had Ella Buckland.
4: That's right, Ella Buckland, who is a welfare justice advocate and Parents Next critic, who was talking about the particular way in which Parents Next is sexist um, and uh, impacts particularly on, on sole parents who generally, who are largely women. Uh, and then before that, we spoke to Jasmine Seymour, who is a Darug writer and school teacher, author of Kui Mitiga, which incorporates Darug language. Uh, and then before that, Jess had an interview with an independent Lebanese protester who talked to us about the situation on the ground and why people are protesting. Um, we've also had more into, uh, more uh, content from the iMark blockade. And there will be more coming up um, on uh, City Limits, which is coming up. But um,
2: First up, stick together. The weather is going to be 28 to 16. Get your hats, get your sunscreen. Have a lovely, warm day. Have a
4: great day, folks. Thanks to Earth Matters before us. And next up, stick together.
2: Stick together. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming
5: discussions and events. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios
2: of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.